millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 120, The Magnates. Last time, we discussed the commercial life of the Roman Empire, with a particular focus on why trade was not the primary cause of the revival in economic life. Though commercial activity was vital and growing, it was the land tax which was filling the state's coffers. More people were being born, more land was being cleared to feed them, more produce was being sold. As I hinted at last week, though, this recovery was leading to an uneven distribution of wealth. In a story that may sound familiar, the wealthy were exploiting the new conditions to enrich themselves. This is, of course, a development which most societies across history have had to deal with, but in the Byzantine case, it will play a leading role in the major developments of the next three centuries. Everywhere across the empire, the recovery was being felt, most obviously in Anatolia, but also over in Greece. Nicephorus had installed themes there a century ago, and they had done their job. No invasions had come from the north, and they'd enjoyed a fairly peaceful time. As you can imagine, when it came to clearing and cultivating new land, the well-off were in a better position than those just getting by. Naturally then, across the ninth century, it was the elite and the church whose holdings expanded the quickest. Once they'd bought the land, they would bring in tenants to work it for them, and this extra income allowed them to buy more properties. The temptation was always to purchase your neighbor's land, to create a large, unbroken estate. If the next farm along belonged to free peasants, then terms might be offered. Sell me your land, you can still live and work there, but you pay rent to me, and in exchange I will take on your tax liability. Across Byzantium, then, the rich were getting richer. We already encountered one particularly wealthy individual, the widow Danelis, the benefactress of the Emperor Basil. She funded part of his rise from the stables to the palace thanks to her massive textiles operation in Greece. 
Her family had clearly amassed a great estate, bought slaves to work it, and reaped the rewards of the increased shipping that Venetian growth was encouraging. Another wealthy man was St. Philaritus. We have to be careful about the evidence for his life because it comes from hagiography. But according to that source, the saint came from a rich family in Paphlagonia, the land along the northwest coast of Anatolia where a lot of the capital's grain came from. Philaritus owned a lot of livestock. A lot of livestock. Apparently his grazing land was sufficient to support 600 cows, 200 oxen, 800 horses, 80 mules, and 12,000 sheep. Whether these figures are exactly right is less important than the fact that clearly families like this existed across Anatolia. Philaretus's biographer acknowledges that he was very wealthy, but doesn't consider flocks and herds of this size to be extraordinary. It's up there, on the plateau, that central area of Anatolia, where our interest lies. We've discussed before that the Arab raids forced the people living here to switch from settled farms to raising livestock. A pastoralist way of life made more sense. Flocks and herds can be moved. They can be hidden. They are self-replenishing. Whereas a field of wheat was a static, vulnerable target. For three centuries now, the people of the plateau had lived a tiring existence. They spent their summers pushing their animals around, seeking good pasture, while always scanning the horizon for warning signs of another assault. As conditions improved during the ninth century, the elites of these lands began to expand more assertively than anyone else. They wanted bigger and better estates to accommodate their now less molested livestock. According to historian Alan Harvey, the wealthy would have targeted small farmers living in the river valleys and sunken basins of the plateau. Their villages made for good winter pasture. Rather than negotiate grazing rights, the rich could buy up the land, turn the peasants into tenants, and then simply tell them to make fields available. Intermarriages also helped transform large holdings into truly massive estates. Estates worthy of a landed magnate, the equivalent in wealth perhaps to some of the feudal lords of Western Europe. Though everywhere the 1% were enjoying themselves, only on the plateau were portfolios of an immense size being formed. The most powerful magnate families established themselves in Cappadocia, the Anatolicon, and Paphlagonia. The government were not thrilled about this development, but it was state policy which was partly responsible for their rise. As we discussed two episodes ago, the emperors kept control of their elites through an elaborate court system. Every year the wealthy and well-born kneeled before their lord, and in exchange received bags of cash to take home. The highest paid employees of the government were naturally the various generals who ran each theme. A stratigos might take home 20 to 30 pounds of gold. 
Now, from this amount, he would have to pay his retainers and administrative staff, so this was not pure profit, but it was still a considerable amount of money being handed to a man who was now likely to be a major landowner within his theme. He would naturally appoint friends and family to take up important subordinate posts, each which brought with it more income. Dominance of these posts by particular families wasn't a big deal when war in Anatolia was just about hiding and the occasional counterattack. But now the Roman army was regularly going on the offensive, raiding Cilicia and the mountains, trying to push the Arabs back and eventually capture their bases. Aggressive campaigns require experienced leadership. You can't take chances when marching into enemy territory, particularly through narrow mountain passes. So as the 9th century reached its final decades, the post of Stratikos came to be dominated more and more by just a few families. The magnates of the plateau were obvious choices for the role. They had a vested interest in defending the land, they had the resources to equip the core of their armies, they had a huge number of friends, relatives and dependents to call upon. And often, they had family connections with Armenia, which gave them important local knowledge. Once a magnate had been Stratikos of his own area for a few years, it was difficult to replace him. Few other men had the necessary authority or experience to do the job, and if he'd led a successful raid, then to the people of his theme he would have been a hero, not only for the glory of victory, but for the booty he distributed amongst them. This was becoming a potentially dangerous situation for the government. Remember that the emperors have spent the past 200 years dividing the themes into smaller and smaller geographical units, part of the reason being all those rebellions which the larger themes launched during the 7th and 8th centuries. By cutting down on the size of armies, the government had made rebellion harder. But now, the magnate's dominance of the themes was once again calling into question the loyalty of provincial troops. Remember that the Stratikos was essentially the governor of his province. Not only did he hold a monopoly on sanctioned violence, but he could also oversee administrative, judicial, and financial arrangements. The influence he held over the lives of his neighbours was immense. Imagine if Nicephorus Phocas, the elder, turns up at your door. He is a war hero. He's commander of your province and the major landowner for miles around. He inquires politely if you'd like to sell your farm to him. He will reward you handsomely, and your family will be a part of his great estate and share in the future glory of his house. How exactly can you say no? Who will you appeal to? What might he do if you refuse? In some cases, peasant farmers were happy to sell. Their supposed freedom brought them no more than a heavy tax burden and a place to hide each summer. 
but for others we can well imagine this pressure forcing them into relinquishing their homes. From our narrative, we can just about trace the outlines of this movement. Some historians point to the civil war between Michael of Amorium and Thomas the Slav as the moment when things were kick-started. Many of the partisans of Thomas lost their lands and certainly their government posts, and this allowed others to pick up property at favourable prices. What followed was 80 years of basically the same dynasty at Constantinople, meaning very few purges or confiscations, which certainly helped families pass on their wealth and knowledge to the next generation. We then begin to spot family names in our story, indicating the dominance of a few clans over the key theme commands. In the 850s, Basil gives the order to go and convert the Paulicians, and we're told that a commander named Ducas, alongside Leo Archiros, were two of the officers who would carry this out. A generation later, and Basil's son Leo was appointing generals named Andronicus Ducas and Efstathios Archiros. Nicephorus Phocas was also highly praised by Leo VI. In his Tactica, the emperor name-checked Nicephorus for his excellent work restoring the Byzantine position in Italy. The Phocas family would remain dominant on the Eastern Front, as those of you who've read ahead know all too well. Other magnate families were emerging at the same time. Back in 886, John Corcuas was put forward as a candidate to replace Basil in a coup. But despite that treason, his family maintained their position, and his grandson will be a celebrated general. When Leo came up with his plan to get the Magyars to attack the Bulgars, he sent Nicetus Sclerus to do the job, and Michael Maleinos was in the capital when Leo died and left us a description of his funeral. All of these families will play starring roles when the narrative resumes, and as usual I have been selective in my pronunciation of them. At first glance, it might not seem that surprising that famous men have their names recorded in the histories. But think about the use of surnames so far on this podcast. During Justinian's reign, for example, the men who served him were known just by their first names. Belisarius, Narses, Trebonian, Bessus, Germanus, Liberius... If they needed better identification, their place of birth was deemed sufficient. John the Cappadocian, Procopius of Caesarea. Back in the days of the Republic, family lineages had been considered very important. The face masks of ancestors decorated the walls with lists of the offices they held. But once those offices lost their former meaning, surnames seemed to have gone with them. Certainly, historians no longer felt the need to catalogue them, and clearly many well-to-do families had no use for them. Their return in Anatolia is a mark of the ethos developing amongst the magnates. 
Their huge wealth put them above other men. Surnames helped establish the nobility of their birth. The family would develop shared values and characteristics which would be passed on to the next generation, or at least that was the idea. Competition for land and for state positions was fierce, and one way of maintaining your family's prominence was to establish a famous lineage that would impress and intimidate. This development is probably connected to the close ties that many of these families had with Armenia. Back in episode 112, I discussed how the Armenian lords battled over small pockets of fertile land in the mountains. Up there, family dynasties were vital for the cohesion and control of disparate communities. When you look at the map, you'll be reminded of the Bagratuni and Artsruni clans. Not only were these magnate families connected to Armenia, but some had their origins there. There'd been plenty of migration from the mountains onto the plateau. A reported 12,000 migrants moved into Cappadocia back in the 790s, for example. Needless to say, this development also coincides with the ability of Roman arms to secure memorable victories against their enemies. Ancestors who suffered constant defeat don't offer the same sense of pride. The names of the famous families seem to have come from a variety of sources. Ducas comes from ducks, the old military rank. Archiros means shining, or possibly silver, which would match up with their home base of Charsianan, where there were mines. Skleros means hard, and uh, they were originally from the lands between Byzantium and Melitene, where you had to be tough. Many of these families had obscure origins, simply having risen through the ranks and invested well. But that didn't stop their propagandists from fabricating fabulous origin stories. The Ducas family would eventually claim that their first of their name to be appointed ducks received this honour from Constantine the Great, while the Focus family went back even further. Supposedly they were descended from the Roman Fabii. Over time, these names would become more and more influential. One of the things archaeologists can still find today are the lead seals which officials put on documents. While the letter they contained has long since decomposed, the seal still bears the name of the recipient. On these, we see a gradual increase in the use of family names over the next few centuries, and by the 12th and 13th, some men will put the name of the famous family they are connected to first, ahead of their own surname. Such will be the prestige of the great magnate houses. All of that is still to come, though. In 900 AD, the growth of the magnates had only just begun to register as a significant change. Leo VI viewed his senior generals as respected colleagues and possibly even friends. You may remember the abortive rebellion of Andronicus Ducas right at the end of our story. 
He fled to Tarsus and then Baghdad, but all the while Leo wanted to mend fences and get him back. Andronicus would die there, but his son soon returned and was given a major command. In fact, Leo's law codes were responsible for loosening some of the restrictions on the activities of the magnates. He eased the rule which forbid state officials from conducting private business while in office. He reduced the period of time when a village community might buy back a farm that had been gobbled up by a rich estate. He even gave permission for some quantity of silk to be placed on the open market, which may have been the result of pressure from his wealthy chums. Leo, of course, never led the army in person, a decision which strengthened the magnate's stranglehold on command experience. In his Tactica, which he compiled with the help of some of these men, Leo indicates a change in the Byzantine view of nobility. Throughout the texts of this period, there is no term for an aristocracy. The wealthy are simply referred to as the wealthy, or as office holders, but they are never given a class distinction marking their kind out as special. Leo doesn't go that far either, but he does say that a general will probably be of good birth. It's an interesting distinction, since Maurice's Strategicon, written three centuries earlier, had said that a general need only be a Christian. Leo now indicates his expectation that his senior men will come from grand families. It was his successors who would see the danger in all this, and this will be a major theme of the narrative in the coming century. The government of Constantinople had allowed the plateau to be ravaged for the past 300 years. It was a small price to pay for the safety of the capital. But of course, for those who lived in the teeth of the raids, the cost was far steeper. A tough, self-sufficient spirit existed across the borderlands. Now that the situation was easing, the people there saw opportunities to reward themselves for the years of hardship their ancestors had suffered. When the government came calling, looking to register the new lands for taxation, they will be viewed dimly. Outsiders trying to horn in on the rewards that they'd done little to earn. The emperors had, after all, abandoned land across the mountains in an attempt to create inhospitable country for the Arabs. Now that Anatolian magnates were making use of it again, how would imperial officials cope when tasked with bringing them back onto the registers? These officials would require the cooperation of the local stratigos a man who was most likely the owner of the land, and your boss. The Roman government had never been fond of rich landowners, not beyond a certain point. They were hard to control. Small farmers were easy to assess, they were easy to tax, and they were easy to recruit. They were vulnerable and afraid of the state. Rich men were not. They could survive without government support. They could hide their wealth. They could bribe administrators. They could eventually 
lead armies against you. When our narrative resumes, taxation will be the pressing concern. Those enrolled in the theme armies are exempt from secondary taxes, the extraordinary levies which were enacted when bridges needed repairing or troops needed food and a bed. The magnates were all involved in military service and had many armed retainers and tenant farmers who fought with them. So each new piece of land which they annexed was removed from the state's corvées. Add to this their ability to bamboozle the tax collectors and make trade profit on the side, these families might start denying the government the funds which kept Constantinople functioning. I should point out, of course, that there were positives to this arrangement. The Roman army was becoming more efficient and effective. Experienced commanders competing with one another for glory is, in this case, a recipe for success. Each magnate maintained their own retinue. These were professional soldiers who spent all their time riding and training. The cavalry corps of each theme was thus far stronger than it had been a century ago. And even the poor farmers, intimidated into selling, might end up better off than they had been. They were now free from the anxiety of being left homeless or ruined. Their landlord would find work for them if their fields suffered. He would also physically protect them from raids and offer their sons the chance to fight with him and enjoy the rewards. There's certainly something approaching irony in this situation. The onslaught of the Arabs very nearly destroyed the empire, but the hammering of the provinces had the benefit of strengthening central control. The past two centuries have seen a powerful state capable of extracting what it needed from its people and developing a strategy which maintained the Roman way of life. Now that their enemies are receding, the people the state took for granted are the ones who are developing a rival centre of power. After all, the only men who can resist the lure of those sacks of gold are the ones wealthy enough to produce it or take it for themselves. The conflict between the government and their wealthiest citizens has unwittingly already begun. Next time, I'll update you on the Roman army in 900 AD. After that, it's all your final questions, then our recap, precap episode, and then it's back to the narrative. The history of Byzantium, the ephemeral city on the hill, is grateful for your support. Over the years, you've helped strengthen our walls, feed our defenders, and boosted our morale. But our city is still beset with enemies all about. We need a beacon system that will warn us when to man the battlements. Of course, this means recruiting more men to man them, and they'll have to stay up all night just in case. If only they had something to read in the wee hours that could maintain their spirits and stave off sleep. I've got it. iTunes reviews. Even if you get the podcast from some other source, please take a moment 
to rate the show in iTunes. We're counting on you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.